Chapter Nine of An Antarctic Mystery or The Sphinx of the Icefields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter Nine Fitting Out the Halbrane. On the fifteenth of October, our schooner cast anchor at Port Egmont on the north of West Falkland. The group is composed of two islands, one the above-named, the other Soldad, or East Falkland. Captain Len Guy gave twelve hours' leave to the whole crew. The next day the proceedings were to begin by a careful and minute inspection of the vessel's hull and keel, in view of the contemplated prolonged navigation of the Antarctic seas. That day Captain Len Guy went ashore to confer with the governor of the group on the subject of the immediate revictualling of the schooner. He did not intend to make expense a consideration, because the whole adventure might be wrecked by an unwise economy. Besides, I was ready to aid with my purse, as I told him, and I intended that we should be partners in the cost of this expedition. James West remained on board all day, according to his custom, in the absence of the captain, and was engaged until evening in the inspection of the hold. I did not wish to go ashore until the next day. I should have ample time, while we remained in port, to explore Port Egmont, and its surroundings, and to study the geology and mineralogy of the island. Hurlygurly regarded the opportunity as highly favourable for the renewal of talk with me, and availed himself of it accordingly. He accosted me as follows. "'Accept my sincere compliments, Mr. Jarling.' "'And wherefore, Bosun?' "'On account of what I have just heard, that you are to come with us to the far end of the Antarctic seas.' "'Oh, not so far, I imagine, and if it is not a matter of going beyond the eighty-fourth parallel.' "'Who can tell?' replied the Bosun. "'At all events, the Halbrane will make more degrees of latitude than any other ship before her.' We shall see. And does that not alarm you, Mr. Jorling? Not in the very least. Nor us, rest assured. No, no. You see, Mr. Jorling, our captain is a good one, although he is no talker. You only need to take him the right way. First he gives you the passage to Tristan de Chuna, that he refused you at first. Now he extends it to the pole. The pole is not the question, Boson. Ah, it will be reached at last some day. The thing has not yet been done, and besides I don't take much interest in the pole, and have no ambition to conquer it. In any case, it is only to Salal Island. Salal Island, of course. Nevertheless, you will acknowledge that our captain has been very accommodating to you, and— And therefore I am much obliged to him, Boson, and, I hasten to add, to you also, for since it is to your influence I owe my passage— Hurlygurly, a good fellow at bottom, as afterwards I learned, discerned a little touch of irony in my tone, but he did not appear to do so. He was resolved to persevere in his patronage of me, and indeed his conversation could not be otherwise than profitable to me, for he was thoroughly acquainted with the Falkland Islands. The result was that on the following day I went ashore, adequately prepared to begin my perquisitions at that period the falklands were not utilized as they have been since it was at a later date that port stanley described by 
Elysee Recluse, the French geographer, as ideal, was discovered. Port Stanley is sheltered at every point of the compass, and could contain all the fleets of Great Britain. If I had been sailing for the last two months with bandaged eyes, and without knowing whither the Halbrane was bound, and had been asked, during the first few hours at our moorings, are you in the Falkland Islands or in Norway? I should have puzzled how to answer the question. For here were coasts forming deep cracks, the steep hills with peaked sides, and the coast ledges faced with grey rock. Even the seaside climate, exempt from great extremes of cold and heat, is common to the two countries. Besides, the frequent rains of Scandinavia visit Magdalen's region in like abundance. Both have dense fogs, and in spring and autumn, winds so fierce that the very vegetables in the fields are frequently rooted up. A few walks inland would, however, have sufficed to make me recognize that I was still separated by the equator from the waters of northern Europe. What had I found to observe in the neighborhood of Port Egmont after my explorations of the first few days? Nothing but the signs of sickly vegetation, nowhere arborescent. Here and there a few shrubs grew, in place of the flourishing firs of the Norwegian mountains, and the surface of the spongy soil, which sinks and rises under the foot, is carpeted with mosses, fungi, and lichens. No, this was not the enticing country where the echoes of the sagas resound. This was not the poetic realm of Wooden and the Valkyries. On the deep waters of the Falcon Strait, which separates the two principal isles, great masses of extraordinary aquatic vegetation floated, and the bays of the archipelago, where whales were already becoming scarce, were frequented by other marine mammals of enormous size, seals twenty-five feet long by twenty in circumference, and great numbers of sea-elephants, wolves, and lions of proportion no less gigantic. The uproar made by these animals, by the females and their young especially, surpasses description. One would think that herds of cattle were bellowing on the beach. Neither difficulty nor danger attends the capture, or at least the slaughter of the marine beasts. The sealers kill them with a blow of a club when they are lying in the sands on the strand. These are the special features that differentiate Scandinavia from the Falklands, not to speak of the infinite number of birds which rose on my approach, grebe, cormorants, black-headed swans, and above all, tribes of penguins, of which hundreds of thousands are massacred each year. One day, when the air was filled with a sound of braying, sufficient to deafen one, I asked an old sailor belonging to Port Egmont, Are there asses about here? Sir, he replied, those are not asses that you hear, but penguins. The asses themselves, had any been there, would have been deceived by the braying of these stupid birds. I pursued my investigations some way to the west of the bay. West Falkland is more extensive than its neighbour, La Soldad, and possesses another fort at the southern point of Byron Sound, too far off for me to go there. I could not estimate the population of the archipelago, even approximately. Probably it did not then exceed from two to three hundred souls, mostly English, with some Indians, Portuguese, Spaniards, 
Gauche from the Argentine Pampas, and natives from Tierre del Fuel. On the other hand, the representatives of the ovine and bovine races were to be counted by tens of thousands. More than 500,000 sheep yield over $400,000 worth of wool yearly. There are also horned cattle bred on the islands. These seem to have increased in size, while the other quadrupeds, for instance, horses, pigs, and rabbits, have decreased. All these live in a wild state, and the only beast of prey is a dog-fox, a species peculiar to the fauna of the Falklands. Not without reason has this island been called a cattle-farm. What inexhaustible pastures! What an abundance of that savoury grass, the tussock, does nature lavish on animals there! Australia, though so rich in this respect, does not set a better spread table before her ovine and bovine pensioners. The Falklands ought to be resorted to for the revictualling of ships. The groups are of real importance to navigators making for the Strait of Magellan, as well as to those who come to fish in the vicinity of the polar regions. When the work on the hull was done, West occupied himself with the masts and the rigging, with the assistance of Martin Holt, our sailing-master, who was very clever at this kind of industry. On the 21st of October, Captain Len Guy said to me, "'You shall see, Mr. Jorling, that nothing will be neglected to ensure the success of our enterprise. Everything that can be foreseen has been foreseen, and if the Halbrane is to perish in some catastrophe, it will be because it is not permitted to human beings to go against the designs of God.' "'I have good hopes, Captain, as I have already said. Your vessel and her crew are worthy of confidence.' But supposing the expedition should be much prolonged, perhaps the supply of provisions? We shall carry sufficient for two years, and those shall be of good quality. Port Egmont has proved capable of supplying us with everything we require. Another question, if you will allow me. Put it, Mr. Jorling, put it. Shall you not need a more numerous crew for the Halbrane? Though you have men enough for the working of the ship, Suppose you find you have to attack or defend in the Antarctic waters. Let us not forget that, according to Arthur Pym's narrative, there were thousands of natives on Salal Island, and if your brother, his companions, are prisoners. I hope, Mr. Jorling, our artillery will protect the Halbrane better than the Jane was protected by her guns. To tell the truth, the crew we have would not be sufficient for an expedition of this kind. I have been arranging for recruiting our forces. Will it be difficult? Yes and no, for the governor has promised to help me. I surmise, Captain, that recruits will have to be attracted by larger pay. Double pay, Mr. Jorling, and the whole crew must have the same. You know, Captain, I am disposed and indeed desirous to contribute to the expenses of the expedition. Will you kindly consider me as your partner? All that shall be arranged, Mr. Jorling, and I am grateful to you. The main point is to complete our armament with the least possible delay. We must be ready to clear out in a week. The news that the schooner was bound for the Antarctic seas had produced some sensation in the Falklands, at Port Egmont, and in the ports of La Soldade. At that season a number of unoccupied sailors were there, awaiting the passage of the whaling-ships, 
to offer their services, for which they were very well paid in general. If it had been only for a fishing campaign on the borders of the polar circle between the Sandwich Islands and New Georgia, Captain Len Guy would have merely had to make a selection. But the projected voyage was a very different thing, and only the old sailors of the Halbrane were entirely indifferent to the dangers of such an enterprise, and ready to follow their chief whithersoever it might please him to go. In reality it was necessary to treble the crew of the schooner. Counting the captain, the mate, the boatswain, the cook, and myself, we were thirteen on board. Now, thirty-two or thirty-four men would not be too many for us, and it must be remembered that there were thirty-eight on board the Jane. In this emergency the governor exerted himself to the utmost, and thanks to the largely extra pay that was offered, Captain Len Guy procured his full tale of seamen. Nine recruits signed articles for the duration of the campaign, which could not be fixed beforehand, but was not to extend beyond Salal Island. The crew, counting every man on board except myself, numbered thirty-one, and a thirty-second for whom I bespeak special attention. On the eve of our departure, Captain Len Guy was accosted at the angle of the port by an individual whom he recognized as a sailor by his clothes, his walk, and his speech. This individual said, in a rough and hardly intelligible voice, "'Captain, I have a proposal to make to you.' "'What is it? Have you still a place?' "'For a sailor?' "'For a sailor.' "'Yes and no. Is it yes?' "'It is yes, if the man suits me.' "'Will you take me?' "'You are a seaman?' "'I have served the sea for twenty-five years.' "'Where?' In the southern seas. Far? Yes, far, far. Your age? Forty-four years. And are you at Port Egmond? I shall have been there three years come Christmas. Did you expect to get on a passing whale-ship? No. Then what are you doing here? Nothing. I did not think of going to sea again. Then why do you seek a berth? Just an idea. The news of the expedition of your schooner is going on with spread. I desire, yes, I desire, to take a part in it with your leave, of course. You are known at Port Egmond? Very well known, and I have incurred no reproach since I came here. Very well, said the captain. I will make an inquiry respecting you. Inquire, captain, and if you say yes, my bag shall be on board this evening. What is your name? Hunt. And you are? An American. This Hunt was a man of short stature. His weather-beaten face was brick-red. His skin was of a yellowish-brown, like an Indian's. His body clumsy, his head very large. His legs were bowed. His whole frame denoted exceptional strength, especially at the arms, which terminated in huge hands. His grizzled hair resembled a kind of fur. A particular, and anything but prepossessing character, was imparted to the physiognomy of this individual by the extraordinary keenness of his small eyes, his almost lipless mouth, which stretched from ear to ear, and his long teeth, which were dazzlingly white, their enamel being intact, for he had never been attacked by scurvy, the common scourge of seamen in high latitudes. Hunt had been living in the Falklands for three years, 
He lived alone on a pension. No one knew from whence this was derived. He was singularly uncommunicative, and passed his time in fishing, by which he might have lived, not only as a matter of sustenance, but as an article of commerce. The information gained by Captain Len Guy was necessarily incomplete, as it was confined to Hunt's conduct during his residence at Port Egmont. The man did not fight, he did not drink, and he had given many proofs of his Herculean strength. Concerning his past nothing was known, but undoubtedly he had been a sailor. He had said more to Len Guy than he had ever said to anybody, but he kept silence respecting the family to which he belonged and the place of his birth. This was of no importance. That he should prove to be a good sailor was all that we had to think about. Hunt obtained a favourable reply and came on board that same evening. On the 27th, in the morning, in the presence of the authorities of the archipelago, the Halbrane's anchor was lifted, the last good wishes and the final adieus were exchanged, and the schooner took the sea. The same evening, Cape's Dolphin and Pembroke disappeared in the mists of the horizon. Thus began the astonishing adventure undertaken by these brave men, who were driven by a sentiment of humanity, towards the most terrible regions of the Antarctic realm. End of chapter 9「Ten of an Antarctic Mystery, or the Sphinx of the Icefields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 10. The Outset of the Enterprise. Here I was, then, launched into an adventure which seemed likely to surpass all my former experiences. Who would have believed such a thing of me? But I was under a spell which drew me towards the unknown, that unknown of the polar world whose secret so many daring pioneers had in vain essayed to penetrate. And this time who could tell but that the sphinx of the Antarctic regions would speak for the first time to human ears? The new crew had, firstly, to apply themselves to learning their several duties, and the old, all fine fellows, aided them in the task. Although Captain Len Guy had not much choice, he seemed to have been in luck. These sailors, of various nationalities, displayed zeal and good will. They were aware also that the mate was a man with whom it would not do to vex, for Hurly-Gurly had given them to understand that West would break any man's head who did not go straight. His chief allowed him full latitude in this respect. A latitude, he added, which is obtained by taking the altitude of the eye with a shut fist. I recognized my friend the boatswain in the manner of this warning to all whom it might concern. The new hands took the admonition seriously, and there was no occasion to punish any of them. As for Hunt, while he observed the docility of a true sailor in all his duties, he always kept himself apart, speaking to none, and even slept on the deck in a corner rather than occupy a bunk in the forecastle with the others. Captain Len Guy's intention was to take the Sandwich Isles for his point of departure towards the south, after having made acquaintance with New Georgia, distant eight hundred miles from the Falklands, 
Thus the schooner would be in longitude on the route of the Jane. On the 2nd of November, this course brought us to the bearings which certain navigators have assigned to the Aurora Islands, 30 degrees 15 minutes of latitude, and 47 degrees 33 minutes of east longitude. Well then, notwithstanding the affirmations, which I regarded with suspicion, of the captains of the Aurora in 1762, of the St. Miguel in 1769, of the Pearl in 1779, of the Prinicus and the Dolores in 1790, of the Atrevida in 1794, which gave the bearings of these three islands of the group, we did not perceive a single indication of land in the whole of the space traversed by us. It was the same with regard to the alleged islands of the conceited class. Not a single little islet was to be seen in the position he had indicated, although the lookout was most carefully kept. It is to be feared that His Excellency, the Governor of Tristan d'Acuna, will never see his name figuring in geographical nomenclature. It was now the 6th of November. Our passage promised to be shorter than that of the Jane. We had no need to hurry, however. Our schooner would arrive before the gates of the iceberg wall would be open. For three days the weather caused the working of the ship to be unusually laborious, and the new crew behaved very well. Thereupon the boatswain congratulated them. Hurlygurly bore witness that Hunt, for all his awkward and clumsy build, was in himself worth three men. "'A famous recruit,' said he. "'Yes, indeed,' I replied, and gained just at the last moment. "'Very true, Mr. Jarling, but what a face and head he has, that Hunt!' "'I have often met Americans like him in the regions of the far west,' I answered, "'and I should not be surprised if this man had Indian blood in his veins. "'Do you ever talk with Hunt?' "'Very seldom, Mr. Jarling. He keeps to himself, and away from everybody. "'And yet it is not for want of mouth.' I never saw anything like his. And his hands? Have you seen his hands? Be on your guard, Mr. Jorling, for if he ever wants to shake hands with you. Fortunately, Boson, Hunt does not seem to be quarrelsome. He appears to be a quiet man who does not abuse his strength. No, except when he is setting a hull-yard. Then I am always afraid the pulley will come down in the yard with it. Hunt certainly was a strange being, and I could not resist observing him with curiosity, especially as it struck me that he regarded me at times with a curious intentness. On the 10th of November, at about two in the afternoon, the lookout shouted, "'Land ahead! Starboard!' An observation had just given fifty-seven degrees seven minutes latitude, and forty-one degrees thirteen minutes longitude. This land could only be the Isle de Saint-Paris. Its British names are South Georgia, New Georgia, and King George's Islands, and it belongs to the circumpolar regions. It was discovered by the Frenchman Barbe in 1675, before Cook, but although he came in second, the celebrated navigator gave it the series of names which it still bears. The schooner took the direction of this island, whose snow-clad heights, formidable masses of ancient rock rise to an immense altitude through the yellow fogs of the surrounding space. New Georgia, situated within five hundred leagues of Magdalen Straits, belongs to the administrative domains of the Falklands, 
the british administration is not represented there by any one the island is not inhabited although it is habitable at least in the summer season on the following day while the men were gone in search of water i walked about in the vicinity of the bay the place was an utter desert for the period at which sealing is pursued there had not arrived new georgia being exposed to the direct action of the antarctic polar current is freely frequented by marine mammals i saw several droves of these creatures on the rocks the strand and within the rock grottoes of the coast whole smalas of penguins standing motionless in interminable rows brayed their protest against the invasion of an intruder i allude to myself innumerable larks flew over the surface of the waters and the sands their song awoke my memory of lands more favoured by nature it is fortunate that these birds do not want branches to perch on for there does not exist a tree in new georgia here and there i found a few phanograms some pale-coloured mosses and especially tussock grass in such abundance that numerous herds of cattle might be fed upon the island on the twelfth november the halbrane sailed once more and having doubled charlotte point at the extremity of royal bay she headed in the direction of the sandwich islands four hundred miles from thence so far we had not encountered floating ice the reason was that the summer sun had not detached any either from the icebergs or the southern lands later on the current would draw them to the height of the fiftieth parallel which in the southern hemisphere is that of paris or quebec but we were much impeded by huge banks of fog which frequently shut out the horizon nevertheless as these waters presented no danger and there was nothing to fear from ice-packs or drifting icebergs the halbrane was able to pursue her route towards the sandwich islands comfortably enough great flocks of clangorous birds breasting the wind and hardly moving their wings passed us in the midst of fogs petrels divers halicons and albatross bound landwards as though to show us the way owing no doubt to these mists we were unable to discern traversey island captain len guy however thought some vague streaks of intermittent light which were perceived in the night between the fourteenth and the fifteenth probably proceeded from a volcano which might be that of traversey as the crater frequently emits flames on the seventeenth november the schooner reached the archipelago to which cook gave the name of southern tool in the first instance as it was the most southern land that had been discovered at that period he afterward baptized it sandwich isles james west repaired to tool in the large boat in order to explore the approachable points while captain len guy and i descended on the bristol strand we found absolutely desolate country the only inhabitants were melancholy birds of antarctic species mosses and lichens cover the nakedness of an unproductive soil behind the beach a few firs rise to a considerable height on the bare hillsides from whence great masses occasionally come crashing down with a thundering sound awful solitude reigns everywhere there was nothing to attest the passage of any human being or the presence of any shipwrecked persons on bristol island west's explorations at tulle produced a precisely similar result a few shots fired from our schooner 
had no effect but to drive away the crowd of petrels and divers, and to startle the rows of stupid penguins on the beach. While Captain Len Guy and I were walking, I said to him, "'You know, of course, what Cook's opinion on the subject of the Sandwich Group was when he discovered it. At first he believed he had set foot upon a continent. According to him, the mountains of ice carried out of the Antarctic Sea by the drift were detached from that continent.' He recognized afterwards that the sandwiches only formed an archipelago, but nevertheless his belief that a polar continent further south exists remained firm and unchanged. "'I know that is so, Mr. Jorling,' replied the captain. "'But if such a continent exists, we must conclude that there is a great gap in its coast, and that Weddell and my brother each got in by that gap at six years' interval, that our great navigator had not the luck to discover this passage is easy to explain. He stopped at the seventy-first parallel. But others found it after Captain Cook, and others will find it again. And we shall be of the number, Captain. Yes, with the help of God. Cook did not hesitate to assert that no one would ever venture further than he had gone, and that the Antarctic lands, if any such existed, would never be seen but the future will prove that he was mistaken. They have been seen so far as the eighty-fourth degree of latitude. And who knows, said I, perhaps beyond that, by Arthur Pym. Perhaps, Mr. Jorling, it is true that we have not to trouble ourselves about Arthur Pym, since he at least, and Dirk Peters also, returned to America. But, supposing he did not return, I consider that we have not to face that eventuality replied Captain Len Guy. End of chapter 10「An Antarctic Mystery」by Jules Verne Chapter 11 From the Sandwich Islands to the Polar Circle The Halbrane, singularly favoured by the weather, sighted the New South Orkneys group in six days after she had sailed from the Sandwich Islands. This archipelago was discovered by Palmer, an American, and Bothwell, an Englishman, jointly in 1821-22. Crossed by the 61st parallel, it is comprehended between the forty-fourth and the forty-seventh meridian. On approaching we were able to observe contorted masses and steep cliffs on the north side, which became less rugged as they neared the coast, at whose edge lay enormous ice-floes, heaped together in formidable confusion. These, before two months should have expired, should be drifted towards the temperate waters. At that season the whaling-ships would appear to carry on the taking of the great blowing creatures, while some of their crews would remain on the island to capture seals and sea-elephants. In order to avoid the strait, which was encumbered with islets and ice-floes, Captain Len Guy first cast anchor at the southeastern extremity of Lorry Island, where he passed the day on the 24th. Then, having rounded to Cape Dundas, he sailed along the southern coast of Coronation Island, where the schooner anchored on the 25th. Our close and careful researches produced no result as regarded the sailors of the Jane. 
The islands and islets were peopled by multitudes of birds. Without taking the penguins into account, those guano-covered rocks were crowded with white pigeons, a species of which I had already seen some specimens. These birds have rather short, conical beaks, and red-rimmed eyelids. They can be knocked over with little difficulty. As for the vegetable kingdom in the New South Orkneys, it is represented only by grey lichen and some scanty seaweeds. Mussels are found in great abundance along the rocks. Of these we procured an ample supply. The boatswain and his men did not lose the opportunity of killing several dozens of penguins with their sticks, not from a ruthless instinct of destruction, but from the legitimate desire to procure fresh food. "'Their flesh is just as good as chicken, Mr. Jarling,' said Hurlygurly. "'Did you not eat penguin at the Kerguelen's?' "'Yes, Bosun, but it was cooked by Arkins.' "'Very well, then. It will be cooked by Endicott here, and you will not know the difference.' And in fact we in the saloon, like the men in the forecastle, were regaled with penguin and acknowledged the merits of our excellent sea-cook.' The Halbrane sailed on the 26th of November, at six o'clock in the morning, heading south. She reascended the 43rd meridian. This we were able to ascertain very exactly by a good observation. This route it was that Weddell, and then William Guy, had followed, and, provided the schooner did not deflect either to the east or the west, she must inevitably come to Salal Island. The difficulties of navigation had to be taken into account, of course. The wind, continuing to blow steadily from the west, was in our favour, and if the present speed of the Halbrane could be maintained, as I ventured to suggest to Captain Len Guy, the voyage from the South Orkneys to the Polar Circle would be a short one. Beyond, as I knew, we should have to force the gate of the thick barrier of icebergs, or to discover a breach in that ice-fortress. "'So that, in less than a month, Captain,' I suggested tentatively, in less than a month I hope to have found the iceless sea which Weddell and Arthur Pym described so fully, beyond the ice-wall, and thenceforth we need only sail under ordinary conditions to Bennet Island in the first place, and afterwards to Salal Island. Once on that wide-open sea, what obstacle could arrest or even retard our progress? I can foresee none, Captain, so soon as we shall get to the back of the ice-wall. The passage through is the difficult point. It must be our chief source of anxieties, and if only the wind holds. It will hold, Mr. Jorling. All the navigators of the Austral Seas have been able to ascertain, as I myself have done, the permanence of this wind. That is true, and I rejoice in the assurance, Captain. Besides, I acknowledge, without shrinking from the admission, that I am beginning to be superstitious. "'And why not, Mr. Jorling? "'What is there unreasonable in admitting the intervention of a supernatural power "'in the most ordinary circumstances of life? "'And we who sail the Halbrane, should we venture to doubt it? "'Recall to your mind our meeting with the unfortunate Patterson on our ship's course, "'the fragment of ice carried into the waters where we were, "'and dissolved immediately afterwards. "'Were not these facts providential?' nay i go further still and am sure that after having done so much to guide us towards our compatriots god will not abandon us i think as you think captain no his intervention is not to be denied 
and I do not believe that chance plays the part assigned to it by superficial minds upon the stage of human life. All the facts are united by a mysterious chain. A chain, Mr. Jorling, whose first link, so far as we are concerned, is Patterson's ice-block, and whose last will be Salal Island. Ah, my brother, my poor brother, left there for eleven years with his companions in misery, without being able to entertain the hope that succour ever could reach them. And Patterson carried far away from them, under we know not what conditions, they not knowing what had become of him. If my heart is sick when I think of these catastrophes, Mr. Jorling, at least it will not fail me, unless it be at the moment when my brother throws himself into my arms. So then we too were agreed in our trust in Providence. It had been made plain to us in a manifest fashion that God had entrusted us with a mission, and we would do all that might be humanly possible to accomplish it. The schooner's crew, I ought to mention, were animated by like sentiments, and shared the same hopes. I alluded to the original seamen, who were so devoted to their captain. As for the new ones, they were probably indifferent to the result of the enterprise, provided it should secure the profits promised to them by their engagement. At least I was assured by the boatswain that such was the case, but with the exception of Hunt. This man had apparently not been induced to take service by the bribe of high wages or prize-money. He was absolutely silent on that and every other subject. "'If he does not speak to you, boatswain, I said, "'neither does he speak to me.' "'Do you know, Mr. Jorling, "'what it is my notion that man has already done? "'Tell me, Hurly-Gurly.' "'Well, then, I believe he has gone far, "'far into the southern seas. "'Let him be as dumb as a fish about it. "'Why he is dumb is his own affair. "'But if that sea-hog of a man "'has not been inside the Antarctic Circle, "'and even the ice-wall by a good dozen degrees,' May the first sea we ship carry me overboard. From what do you judge, boatswain? From his eyes, Mr. Jorling, from his eyes. No matter at what moment, let the ship's head be as it may, those eyes of his are always on the south, open, unwinking, fixed like guns in position. Hurly-gurly did not exaggerate, and I had already remarked this. To employ an expression of Edgar Poe's, Hunt had eyes like a falcon's. When he is not on the watch, resumed the boatswain, that savage leans all the time with his elbows on the side, as motionless as he is mute. His right place would be at the end of our bow, where he would do for a figurehead to the halbrain, and a very ugly one at that. And then, when he is at the helm, Mr. Jorling, just observe him. His enormous hands clutch the handles as though they were fastened to the wheel. He gazes at the binnacle as though the magnet of the compass were drawing his eyes. I pride myself on being a good steersman, but as for being the equal of Hunt, I am not. With him, not for an instant does the needle vary from the sailing line, however rough a lurch she may give. I am sure that if the binnacle lamp were to go out in the night, Hunt would not require to relight it. The fire in his eyes would light up the dial and keep him right." For several days our navigation went on in unbroken monotony, without a single incident, and under favourable conditions. The spring season was advancing, and whales began to make their appearance in large numbers. In these waters a week would suffice for ships of heavy tonnage to fill their casks with the precious oil. 
Thus, the new men of the crew, and especially the Americans, did not conceal their regret for the captain's indifference in the presence of so many animals worth their weight in gold, and more abundant than they had ever seen whales at that period of the year. The leading malcontent was Hearn, a sealing-master, to whom his companions were ready to listen. He had found it easy to get the upper hand of the other sailors by his rough manner and the surly audacity that was expressed by his whole personality. Hearn was an American, and forty-five years of age. He was an active, vigorous man, and I could see him, in my mind's eye, standing up in his double-bowed whaling-boat, brandishing the harpoon, darting it into the flank of a whale, and paying out the rope. He must have been fine to see. Granted his passion for this business, I could not be surprised that his discontent showed itself upon occasion. In any case, however, our schooner was not fitted out for fishing, and the implements of whaling were not on board. One day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, I had gone forward to watch the gambols of a school of the huge sea mammals. Hearn was pointing them out to his companions and muttering in disjointed phrases, "'There, look, there's a fin back, there's another, and another three of them with their dorsal fins five or six feet high.' Just see them swimming between two waves, quietly, making no jumps. Ah, if I had a harpoon, I'd bet my head that I could send it into one of those four yellow spots they have on their bellies. But there's nothing to be done in this traffic box. One cannot stretch one's arms. Devil take it. In these seas it is fishing we ought to be at, not— Then, stopping short, he swore a few oaths and cried out, And that other whale! The one with a hump like a dromedary? asked a sailor. "'Yes, it's a humpback,' replied Hearn. "'Do you make out its wrinkled belly, and also its long dorsal fin? "'They are not easy to take, those humpbacks, "'for they go down into the great depths and devour long reaches of your lines. "'Truly, we deserve that he should give us a switch of his tail on our side, "'since we don't send a harpoon into his.' "'Look out! Look out!' shouted the boatswain. This was not to warn us that we were in danger of receiving the formidable stroke of the humpback's tail, which the sea-master had wished us. No, an enormous blower had come alongside the schooner, and almost on the instant a spout of ill-smelling water was ejected from its blowhole with a noise like a distant roar of artillery. The whole foredeck to the main hatch was inundated. "'That's well done,' growled Hearn, shrugging his shoulders while his companions shook themselves and cursed the humpback. Besides these two kinds of cetacea, we had observed several right whales, and these are the most usually met with in the southern seas. They have no fins, and their blubber is very thick. The taking of these fat monsters of the deep is not attended with much danger. The right whales are vigorously pursued in the southern seas, where the little shellfish called whale's food abound. The whales subsist entirely upon these small crustaceans. Presently, one of the right whales, measuring sixty feet in length, that is to say, the animal was the equivalent of a hundred barrels of oil, was seen floating within three cable-lengths of the schooner. "'Yes, that's a right whale,' exclaimed Hearn. "'You might tell it by its thick, short spout. See, that one on the port side, like a column of smoke, that's the spout of a right whale.' and all this is passing before our very noses a dead loss why it's like emptying money-bags into the sea not to fill one's barrels when one can a nice sort of captain indeed to let all this merchandise be lost and do such wrong to his crew hearn 
said an imperious voice. "'Go up to the main-top. You will be more at your ease there to reckon the whales.' "'But, sir!' "'No reply, or I'll keep you up there till to-morrow. Come, be off at once.' And as he would have got the worst of an attempt at resistance, the sealing-master obeyed in silence. The season must have been abnormally advanced, for although we continued to see a vast number of testaceans, we did not catch sight of a single whaling-ship in all this fishing-ground. I hasten to state that, although we were not tempted by whales, no other fishing was forbidden on board the Halbrane, and our daily bill of fare profited by the boatswain's trawling-lines to the extreme satisfaction of stomachs weary of salt meat. Our lines brought us goby, salmon, cod, mackerel, conger, mullet, and parrotfish. The birds which we saw, and which came from every point of the horizon, were those I have already mentioned, petrels, divers, helicons, and pigeons in countless flocks. I also saw, but beyond aim, a giant petrel. Its dimensions were truly astonishing. This was one of those called Quibrantes Jesus by the Spaniards. This bird of the Magellanian waters is very remarkable. Its curved and slender wings have a span of from thirteen to fourteen feet, equal to that of the wings of the great albatross. Nor is the latter wanting among these powerful winged creatures. We saw the dusky-plumed albatross of the cold latitudes sweeping towards the glacial zone. On the 30th of November, after observation taken at noon, it was found that we had reached 66 degrees, 23 minutes, 3 seconds of latitude. The Halbrane had then crossed the polar circle, which circumscribes the area of the Antarctic zone. End of chapter 11「Twelve of an Antarctic Mystery or the Sphinx of the Icefields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 12 Between the Polar Circle and the Ice Wall Since the Halbrane has passed beyond the imaginary curve, drawn at twenty-three and a half degrees from the pole, it seems as though she had entered a new region, that region of desolation and silence, as Edgar Poe says, that magic person of splendor and glory in which the Eleanora's singers longed to be shut up to all eternity, that immense ocean of light ineffable. It is my belief, to return to less fanciful, hypotheses that the antarctic region with a superficies of more than five million of square miles has remained what our spheroid was during the glacial period in the summer the southern zone as we all know enjoys perpetual day owing to the rays projected by the orb of light above its horizon in his spiral ascent then so soon as he has disappeared the long night sets in a night which is frequently illuminated by the polar aurora or northern lights. It was then in the season of light that our schooner was about to sail in these formidable regions. The permanent brightness would not fail us before we should have reached Salal Island, where we felt no doubt of finding the men of the Jane. When Captain Len Guy, West, and the old sailors of the crew learned that the schooner had cleared the sixty-sixth parallel of latitude, their rough and sunburnt faces shone with satisfaction. 
The next day Hurlygurly accosted me on the deck with a broad smile and a cheerful manner. "'So then, Mr. Jorling,' said he, "'we've left the famous circle behind us.' "'Not far enough, boatswain, not far enough. "'Ah, oh, that will come, but I am disappointed.' "'In what way?' "'Because we have not done what is usual on board ships on crossing the line.' "'You regret that?' "'Certainly I do, and the Halbrane might have been allowed the ceremony of a southern baptism.' a baptism and whom would you have baptized boatswain seeing that all our men like yourself have already sailed beyond this parallel we oh yes but you oh no mr jorling and why may i ask should not that ceremony be performed in your honour true boatswain this is the first time in the course of my travels that i have been in so high a latitude and you should have been rewarded by a baptism mr jorling "'Yes, indeed, but without any big fuss, no drum and trumpet about it, "'and leaving out old Father Neptune with his masquerade. "'If you would permit me to baptize you.' "'So be it, Hurlygurly,' said I, putting my hand into my pocket. "'Baptize as you please. "'Here is something to drink my health with at the nearest tavern. "'Then that will be Bennet Islet or Salal Island, "'provided there are any taverns in those savage islands, "'and any Atkinses to keep them.' "'Tell me, boatswain, I always get back to hunt. "'Does he seem so much pleased to have passed the polar circle "'as the Halbrane's old sailors are?' "'Oh, knows. There's nothing to be got out of him one way or another. "'But, as I have said before, if he has not already made acquaintance with this ice barrier. "'What makes you think so?' "'Everything and nothing, Mr. Jorling. "'One feels these things. One doesn't think them. "'Hunt is an old sea-dog who has carried his canvas bag into every corner of the world. The boatswain's opinion was mine also, and some inexplicable presentiment made me observe Hunt constantly, for he occupied a large share of my thoughts. Early in December the wind showed a northwest tendency, and that was not good for us, but we would have no serious right to complain, so long as it did not blow due southwest. In the latter case, the schooner would have been thrown out of her course, or at least she would have had a struggle to keep in it, and it was better for us, in short, not to stray from the meridian which we had followed since our departure from the new South Orkneys. Captain Len Guy was made anxious by this alteration in the wind, and besides, the speed of the Halbrane was manifestly lessened, for the breeze began to soften on the 4th, and in the middle of the night it died away. The morning the sails hung motionless and shriveled along the mass. Although not a breath reached us, and the surface of the ocean was unruffled, the schooner was rocked from side to side by the long oscillations of the swell coming from the west. "'The sea feels something,' said Captain Len Guy to me, "'and there must be rough weather on that side,' he added, pointing westward. "'The horizon is misty,' I replied, "'but perhaps the sun towards noon.' The sun has no strength in this latitude, Mr. Jorling, not even in summer. Jam! West came up to us. What do you think of the sky? I do not think well of it. We must be ready for anything and everything, Captain. Has not the lookout given a warning of the first drifting ice? I asked. Yes, replied Captain Lenguy, and if we get near the icebergs, the damage will not be to them. Therefore, if prudence demands that we should go either to the east or to the west, we shall resign ourselves, but only in case of absolute necessity. The watch had made no mistake. In the afternoon we sighted masses, 
islets they might be called, of ice, drifting slowly southward, but these were not yet of considerable extent or altitude. These packs were easy to avoid. They could not interfere with the sailing of the Halbrane. But although the wind had hitherto permitted her to keep on course, she was not advancing, and it was exceedingly disagreeable to be rolling about in a rough and hollow sea, which struck our ship's sides most unpleasantly. At about two o'clock it was blowing a hurricane from all the points of the compass. The schooner was terribly knocked about, and the boatswain had the deck cleared of everything that was movable by her rolling and pitching. Fortunately the cargo could not be displaced, the stowage having been affected with perfect forecast of nautical eventualities. We had not to dread the fate of the Grampus, which was lost owing to negligence in her lading. It will be remembered that the brig turned bottom upwards, and that Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters remained for several days crouching on its keel. Besides, the schooner's pumps did not give a drop of water. The ship was perfectly sound in every part, owing to the efficient repairs that had been done during our stay at the Falklands. The temperature had fallen rapidly, and hail, rain, and snow thickened and darkened the air. At ten o'clock in the evening, I must use this word, although the sun remained always above the horizon, the tempest increased, and the captain and his lieutenant, almost unable to hear each other's voices amid the elemental strife, communicated mostly by gestures, which is as good a mode as speech between sailors. I could not make up my mind to retire to my cabin, and, seeking the shelter of the roundhouse, I remained on deck observing the weather phenomenon and the skill certainty celerity and effect with which the crew carried out the orders of the captain and west it was a strange and terrible experience for a landsman even one who had seen so much of the sea and seamanship as i had at the moment of a certain difficult manoeuvre four men had to climb to the crossbars of the foremast in order to reef the mainsail the first who sprang to the ratlines was hunt the second was Martin Holt. Burry and one of the recruits followed them. I could not have believed that any man could display such skill and agility as Hunt's. His hands and feet hardly caught the ratlines. Having reached the crossbars first, he stretched himself on the ropes to the end of the yard, while Holt went to the other end, and the two recruits remained in the middle. While the men were working and the tempest was raging round us, a terrible lurch of the ship to starboard, under the stroke of a mountainous wave, flung everything on the deck into wild confusion, and the sea rushed in through the scrubber-holes. I was knocked down, and for some moments was unable to rise. So great had been the incline of the schooner that the end of the yard of the mainsail was plunged three or four feet into the crest of a wave. When it emerged, Martin Holt, who had been astride on it, had disappeared. A cry was heard— uttered by the sailing-master, whose arm could be seen wildly waving amidst the whiteness of the foam. The sailors rushed to the side and flung out one a rope, another a cask, a third a spar, in short any object of which Martin Holt might lay a hold. At the moment when I struggled up to my feet I caught sight of a massive substance which cleft the air and vanished in the whirl of the waves. Was this a second accident? No, it was a voluntary action, a deed of self-sacrifice. Having finished his task, Hunt had thrown himself into the sea, that he might save Martin Holt. Two men overboard! Yes, two, one, to save the other. 
and were they not about to perish together? The two heads rose to the foaming surface of the water. Hunt was swimming vigorously, cutting through the waves, and was nearing Martin Holt. "'They are lost, both lost!' exclaimed the captain. "'The boat! West, the boat!' "'If you give the order to lower it,' answered West, "'I will be the first to get into it, although at the risk of my life. "'But I must have the order.' In unspeakable suspense the ship's crew and myself had witnessed this scene. None thought of the position of the Halbrane, which was sufficiently dangerous. All eyes were fixed upon the terrible waves. Now fresh cries, the frantic cheers of the crew, rose above the roar of the elements. Hunt had reached the drowning man just as he sank out of sight, had seized hold of him, and was supporting him with his left arm, while Holt, incapable of movement, swayed helplessly about like a weed. With the other arm, Hunt was swimming bravely and making way towards the schooner. A minute, which seemed endless, passed. The two men, the one dragging the other, were hardly to be distinguished in the midst of the surging waves. At last Hunt reached the schooner, and caught one of the lines hanging over the side. In a minute Hunt and Martin Holt were hoisted on board. The latter was laid down at the foot of the foremast, and the former was quite ready to go to his work. Holt was speedily restored by the aid of vigorous rubbing. His senses came back, and he opened his eyes. "'Martin Holt,' said Captain Len Guy, who was leaning over him, "'you have been brought back from very far.' "'Yes, yes, Captain,' answered Holt, as he looked about him with a searching gaze. "'But who saved me?' "'Hunt!' cried the boatswain. "'Hunt risked his life for you.' As the latter was hanging back, Hurley-Gurley pushed him towards Martin Holt, whose eyes expressed the liveliest gratitude. "'Hunt,' he said, "'you have saved me, but for you I should have been lost. I thank you.' Hunt made no reply. "'Hunt,' resumed Captain Lenguy, "'don't you hear?' The man seemed not to have heard. "'Hunt,' said Martin Holt again, "'Come near to me, I thank you. I want to shake hands with you.' And he held out his right hand. Hunt stepped back a few paces, shaking his head with the air of a man who did not want so many compliments for a thing so simple, and quietly walked forward to join his shipmates, who were working vigorously under the orders of West. Decidedly this man was a hero, in courage and self-devotion, but equally decided he was a being impervious to impressions, and not on that day either was the boatswain destined to know the colour of his words. For three whole days, the 6th, 7th, and 8th of December, the tempest raged in these waters, accompanied by snowstorms, which perceptibly lowered the temperature. It is needless to say that Captain Len Guy proved himself a true seaman, that James West had an eye to everything, that the crew seconded them loyally, and that Hunt was always foremost when there was work to be done or danger to be incurred. In truth, I do not know how to give an idea of this man, what a difference there was between him and most of the sailors recruited at the Falklands, and especially between him and Hearn, the sealing-master. They obeyed, no doubt, for such a master as James West gets himself obeyed, whether with good or ill-will. But behind backs what complaints were made, what recriminations were exchanged, all this, I feared, was of evil presage for the future. Martin Holt had been able to resume his duties very soon, and he fulfilled them with hearty good will. 
He knew the business of a sailor right well, and was the only man on board who could compete with Hunt in handiness and zeal. "'Well, Holt,' I said to him one day, when he was talking with the boatswain, "'what terms are you on with that queer fellow Hunt now? Since the salvage affair, is he a little more communicative?' "'No, Mr. Jorling. I think he even tries to avoid me.' "'To avoid you?' "'Well, he did so before, for that matter.' "'Yes, indeed, that is true,' added Hurly-Gurly. "'I have made the same remark more than once.' "'Then he keeps aloof from you, Holt, as from the others?' "'From me more than from the others.' "'What is the meaning of that?' "'I don't know, Mr. Jarling.' "'I was surprised at what the two men had said, "'but a little observation convinced me "'that Hunt actually did avoid every occasion "'of coming in contact with Martin Holt. "'Did he not think that he had a right to Holt's gratitude?' although the latter owed his life to him? This man's conduct was certainly very strange. In the early morning of the ninth, the wind showed a tendency to change in the direction of the east, which would mean more manageable weather for us, and in fact, although the sea still remained rough, at about two in the morning it became feasible to put on more sail without risk, and thus the Halbrane regained the course from which she had been driven by the prolonged tempest. In that portion of the Antarctic Sea, the ice-packs were more numerous, and there was reason to believe that the tempest, by hastening the smash-up, had broken the barrier of the iceberg wall towards the east. End of chapter 12「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 13. Along the Front of the Icebergs. Although the seas beyond the polar circle were wildly tumultuous, it is but just to acknowledge that our navigation had been accomplished so far under exceptional conditions and what good luck it would be if the halbrane in this first fortnight of december were to find the weddell route open there i am talking of the weddell route as though it were a macadamized road well kept with milestones and this way to the south pole on a signpost the numerous wandering masses of ice gave our men no trouble they were easily avoided it seemed likely that no real difficulties would arise until the schooner should have to try to make a passage for herself through the icebergs. Besides, there was no surprise to be feared. The presence of ice was indicated by a yellowish tint in the atmosphere, which the whalers call blink. This is a phenomenon peculiar to the glacial zones, which never deceives the observer. For five successive days the Halbrane sailed without sustaining any damage, without having, even for a moment, had to fear a collision. It is true that in proportion, as she advanced towards the south, the number of ice-packs increased, and the channels became narrower. On the 14th, an observation gave us 72 degrees, 37 minutes for latitude, our longitude remaining the same, between the 42nd and 43rd meridian. This was already a point beyond the Antarctic Circle that few navigators had been able to reach. We were at only two degrees lower than Weddell. The navigation of the schooner naturally became a more delicate matter in the midst of those dim, wan masses soiled with the excretia of birds. Many of them had a leprous look, 
compared with their already considerable volume, how small our little ship, over whose mast some of the icebergs already towered, must have appeared. Captain Len Guy admirably combined boldness and prudence in his command of the ship. He never passed to leeward of an iceberg, if the distance did not guarantee the success of any manoeuvre whatsoever that might suddenly become necessary. He was familiar with all the contingencies of ice navigation, and was not afraid to venture into the midst of these flotillas of drifts and packs. That day he said to me, "'Mr. Jorling, this is not the first time that I have tried to penetrate into the polar sea, and without success. Well, if I made the attempt to do this when I had nothing but presumption as to the fate of the Jane to go upon, what shall I not do now that presumption is changed into certainty?' I understand that, Captain, and, of course, your experience of navigation in these waters must increase our chances of success. Undoubtedly, nevertheless, all that lies beyond the fixed icebergs is still unknown for me, as it is for other navigators. The unknown, no, not absolutely, Captain, since we possess the important reports of Weddell, and, I must add, of Arthur Pym also. Yes, I know. They have spoken of the open sea. Do you not believe that such a sea exists? Yes, I do believe it exists, and for valid reasons. In fact, it is perfectly manifest that these masses, called icebergs and ice-fields, could not be formed in the ocean itself. It is the tremendous and irresistible action of the surge which detaches them from the continents or islands of the high latitudes. Then the currents carry them into less cold waters, where their edges are worn by the waves, while the temperatures disintegrates their bases and their sides, which are subjected to thermometric influences. That seems very plain, I replied. Then these masses have come from the icebergs. They clash with them in drifting, sometimes break into the main body, and clear their passage through. Again, we must not judge the southern by the northern zone. The conditions are not identical." Cook has recorded that he never met the equivalent of the Antarctic ice mountains in the Greenland seas, even at a higher latitude. What is the reason? I asked. No doubt that the influence of the south winds is predominant in the northern regions. Now those winds do not reach the northern regions until they have been heated in their passage over America, Asia, and Europe, and they continue to raise the temperature of the atmosphere. The nearest land, ending in the points of Cape of Good Hope, Patagonia, and Tasmania, does not modify the atmospheric currents. That is an important observation, Captain, and it justifies your opinion with regard to an open sea. Yes, open, at least for ten degrees behind the icebergs. Let us, then, only get through that obstacle, and our greatest difficulty will have been conquered. You are right in saying that the existence of that open sea has been formally recognized by Weddell, and by Arthur Pym, Captain, and by Arthur Pym. From the 15th of December the difficulties of navigation increased with the number of the drifting masses. The wind, however, continued to be uniformly favorable, showing no tendency to veer to the south. The breeze freshened now and then, and we had to take in sail. When this occurred we saw the sea foaming along the sides of the ice-packs, covering them with sprays like the rocks on the coast of a floating island, but without hindering their onward march. Our crew could not fail to be impressed 
by the sight of the schooner making her way through these moving masses. The new men among them, at least, for the old hands had seen such manoeuvres before. But they soon became accustomed to it, and took it all for granted. It was necessary to organise the lookout ahead with the greatest care. West had a cask fixed at the head of the foremast, which is called a crow's nest, and from thence an unremitting watch was kept. The sixteenth was a day of excessive fatigue to the men. The packs and drifts were so close that only very narrow and winding passageway between them was to be found, so that the working of the ship was more than commonly laborious. Under these circumstances none of the men grumbled, but Hunt distinguished himself by his activity. Indeed, he was admitted by Captain Len Guy and the crew to be an incomparable seaman, but there was something mysterious about him that excited the curiosity of them all. At this date the Halbring could not be very far from the icebergs. If she held on in her course in that direction, she would certainly reach them before long, and would then have only to seek for a passage. Hitherto, however, the lookout had not been able to make out between the icebergs an unbroken crest of ice beyond the ice-fields. Constant and minute precautions were indispensable all day on the 16th, for the helm, which was loosened by merciless blows and bumps, was in danger of being unshipped. The sea-mammals had not forsaken these seas. Whales were seen in great numbers, and it was a fairy-like spectacle when several of them spouted simultaneously. With fin-backs and hump-backs, porpoises of colossal size appeared, and these hern harpooned cleverly when they came within range. The flesh of these creatures was much relished on board, and Endicott had cooked it in his best manner. As for the usual Antarctic birds, petrels, pigeons, and cormorants, they passed in screaming flocks, and legions of penguins ranged along the edges of the ice-fields, watched the evolutions of the schooner. These penguins are the real inhabitants of these dismal solitudes, and nature could not have created a type more suited to the desolation of the glacial zone. On the morning of the 17th, the man in the crow's nest at last signalled the icebergs. Five or six miles to the south, a long dentated crest appeared itself, plainly standing out against the fairly clear skies, and all along it drifted thousands of ice-packs. This motionless barrier stretched before us from the northwest to the southeast, and by merely sailing along it the schooner would still gain some degrees southwards. When the Halbrane was within three miles of the icebergs, she lay too in the middle of a wide basin which allowed her complete freedom of movement. A boat was lowered, and Captain Len Guy got into it with the boatswain, four sailors at the oars and one at the helm. The boat was pulled in the direction of the enormous rampart. Vain search was made for a channel through which the schooner could have slipped, and after three hours of this fatiguing reconnoitring, the men returned to the ship. Then came a squall of rain and snow, which caused the temperatures to fall to thirty-six degrees, 2.22 degrees Celsius, above zero, and shut out the view of the ice rampart from us. During the next twenty-four hours the schooner lay within four miles of the icebergs. To bring her nearer would have been to get among winding channels from which it might not have been possible to extricate her. Not that Captain Len Guy did not long to do this, in his fear of passing some opening unperceived. 
"'If I had a consort,' he said, "'I would sail closer along the icebergs, "'and it is a great advantage to be two "'when one is on such an enterprise as this. "'But the Halbrane is alone, "'and if she were to fail us.' "'Even though we approached no nearer to the icebergs "'than prudence permitted, "'our ship was exposed to great risk, "'and West was constantly obliged "'to change his trim in order to avoid the shock of an ice-field.' Fortunately, the wind blew from east to nor northeast, without variation, and it did not freshen. Had a tempest arisen, I know not what would have become of the schooner. Yes, though I do know too well, she would have been lost and all on board of her. In such a case, the Halbrane could not have escaped. We must have been flung on the base of the barrier. After a long examination, Captain Len Guy had to renounce the hope of finding a passage through the terrible wall of ice. It remained only to endeavour to reach the southeast point of it. At any rate, by following that course, we lost nothing in latitude, and in fact, on the 18th, the observation taken made the 73rd parallel the position of the Halbrane. I must repeat, however, that navigation in the Antarctic seas will probably never be accomplished under more fallacious circumstances. The precocity of the summer season, the permanence of the north wind, the temperature of forty-nine degrees at the lowest, all this was the best of good fortune. I need not add that we enjoyed perpetual light, and the whole twenty-four hours round the sun's rays reached us from every point of the horizon. Two or three times the captain approached within two miles of the icebergs, it was impossible but that the vast masses must have been subjected to climatric influences ruptures must surely have taken place at some points but his search had no result and we had to fall back into the current from west to east i must observe at this point that during all our search we never descried land or the appearance of land out at sea as indicated on the charts of preceding navigators these maps are incomplete, no doubt, but sufficiently exact in their main lines. I am aware that ships have often passed over the indicated bearings of land. This, however, was not admissible in the case of Salal. If the Jane had been able to reach the islands, it was because that portion of the Antarctic Sea was free, and in so early a year we need not fear any obstacle in that direction. At last, on the 19th, between two and three o'clock in the afternoon, a shout from the crow's nest was heard. "'What is it?' roared West. "'The iceberg wall is split on the southeast. What is beyond? Nothing in sight.' It took West very little time to reach the point of observation, and we all waited below, how impatiently may be imagined. What if the lookout were mistaken, if some optical delusion? But West, at all events, would make no mistake.' After ten interminable minutes, his clear voice reached us on the deck. "'Open sea!' he cried. Unanimous cheers made answer. The schooner's head was put to the southeast, hugging the wind as much as possible. Two hours later we had doubled the extremity of the ice barrier, and there lay before our eyes our sparkling sea, entirely open. End of chapter 13